We are the loneliest society there has ever been. There's a study that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have who you could call on in a crisis? And when they started doing it years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none. I learned a lot about how this is affecting us from a man called Professor John Cassiopo, who's at the University of Chicago, one of the leading experts in the world about loneliness. He proved a few things. First thing he proved is that for a human being, being acutely lonely is as bad for your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. If you become really lonely, that releases as much of the stress hormone cortisol as if you are punched in the face by a stranger. This is a terrible thing for us. And I asked Professor Cassiopo, well, why is it? Why is it so devastating for us? And he said to me, why do you and I exist? One of the reasons we exist is because our ancestors on the savannas of Africa were really good at one thing. They weren't faster than the animals they took down a lot of the time. They weren't bigger than the animals they took down a lot of the time. But they were much better at banding together into tribes and cooperating. Just like bees evolved to need a hive, humans evolved to need a tribe. And we are the first human beings ever to try to live without tribes. It's making us feel terrible. Picture a, a bee that decided it was going to live apart from the hive. It would go crazy. It would start acting in a way that was completely haywire. Now imagine telling that bee that it was feeling that way just because of a, a pollen imbalance in its brain, right? You can see how that would be a bizarre way of thinking. We are depressed and anxious in this culture for perfectly good reasons. We are living in a culture that does not meet our basic needs for connection, for meaning, for purpose, for a sense of the future. And that is the key reason why we're depressed. One in five Americans will take a psychiatric drug in their lifetime. And I began to think, could it really just be that there's something going wrong in our brains? So I went on this huge journey over 40,000 miles. I interviewed the leading scientists in the world. And when I was a teenager, until I went to my doctor, I had thought my depression was all in my head, meaning it was a sign of weakness, it was shameful. It's not in our heads. If you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not crazy. You're a human being with unmet needs. I started researching what really causes depression and what really solves it for my book Lost Connections for a really personal reason. One was why was I still depressed? When I was a teenager, I'd gone to my doctor and I'd explained that I had this feeling like pain was leaking out of me. I couldn't control it, I couldn't regulate it. And my doctor told me this story. He said, oh, we know why you feel this way. There's this chemical called serotonin in people's brains. You're clearly lacking it. We'll give you these drugs, you'll feel better. So I started taking them. I felt an immediate boost. I felt much better. Within a couple of months, this kind of pain started to bleed back through. So I went back, he gave me a higher dose. Again, the, felt a boost. Again, the pain came back, gave me a higher dose. In the end, I was taking the maximum possible dose for 13 years. Um, and at the end of that, I still felt terrible. For the next 13 years, I thought it was, you know, all in my head, meaning it was a chemical imbalance. Actually, what I learned is it's mostly not in our heads. There are biological factors that can make it worse. But actually, there are nine factors in the way we're living, seven of which are kind of things in our psychology and our environment that are making us depressed and anxious. For example, if you're really lonely, you're much more likely to become depressed. If you feel controlled at work, you're much more likely to become depressed. If you don't feel you have a sense of the future ahead of you, you're much more likely to become depressed. If you don't get to see the natural world, you're much more likely to become depressed. There had been a farmer in their community who one day had stood on a landmine in the rice fields where he worked and his leg was blown off. And 
they took him to hospital, they gave him an artificial limb, and he went back to work in the rice fields. But apparently it's super painful to work in rice fields when you've got an artificial limb. They explained they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realised that his pain made sense. They figured out, well, he's depressed for perfectly obvious reasons. They realised if they bought him a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't have to go into the situation where he was so depressed. Um, so they bought him a cow. Within a few weeks, he stopped crying. He was fine again. They said to Derek, so you see, doctor, that cow was an antidepressant. And while certainly chemical antidepressants have some value and should remain on the table, we need to radically expand the menu of options for people who are depressed and anxious to actually deal with the deep underlying reasons why we feel this way. We need to learn the lesson of the cow. There was a prison in Michigan, the state prison, that looks out, just by coincidence, they didn't design it this way, one part looks out over concrete, one part looks out over green space. When they studied this, they found that the people who looked out over green space had 23% fewer mental health problems than the people who looked out over concrete. There is loads of evidence that exposure to the natural world reduces depression and anxiety, and being deprived of it makes us more and more anxious. We're like animals in the zoo. We're like creatures in captivity. We've been deprived of our habitat, and it's one of the key reasons why we feel so bad. This amazing doctor called Dr. Vincent Felitti in San Diego has made, made a breakthrough in how we understand depression and anxiety in the mid-1980s in a slightly weird way. So he starts working with people who are extremely obese, like more than 400 pounds. And one day he had this kind of, what seems like a stupid idea, right? He was like, what would happen if they just stopped eating and we like medically supervised them, we gave them vitamins and nutrients? Would they just lose weight? They started doing this, obviously, with a huge amount of medical supervision. And the crazy thing is it turned out it worked. They did, in fact, lose loads of weight. They went from being 400 pounds to, like, in the case of one woman, who I'm going to call Susan, 138 pounds. But then something happened that no one expected, which led to a breakthrough when it comes to depression. I'll give you an example from this woman, Susan. One day, she just freaked out. She got down to a healthy weight. She freaked out and just started stuffing her face and started going back to a really unhealthy weight. And... Dr. Felitti sat with him and was like, well, what happened? Something had happened to her that hadn't happened to her in years. A man had hit on her, and it had really freaked her out. So he started to say to Susan, well, Susan, um, when did you start to put on weight? It was when she was 11. He said, well, did anything happen when you were 11 that didn't happen when you were 9 or 14? Or... She said, yeah, that's when my grandfather started to rape me. That's when Dr. Felitti discovered something. 55% of people in this program have been sexually abused and had started to put on weight in the wake of their sexual abuse. It turned out this thing that looked so irrational, their obesity, actually was perfectly rational. As Susan put it, overweight is overlooked, and that's what I needed to be. A lot of the depression we're talking about is not caused by some spontaneous chemical imbalance in people's brains. It's caused by deep pain and grief in their childhood. And Dr. Felitti showed that if you give people a context where they can talk about this, and they can see that they will not be judged, it leads to a really significant fall in depression and anxiety. The reason I found this so difficult is because uh, uh, when I was a child, I had experienced some quite extreme acts of violence. And I realised, I think one of the reasons why I clung for so long to this theory that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance is because I didn't want to think about that. I didn't want... I want the anger that comes with that. But one of the things I would most want to say to anyone who's in that position is 
Don't be afraid. You won't be judged if you talk to the right people and you can release the shame that you carry for this, which you shouldn't have. This should never have happened to you. You can actually experience a real reduction in depression and anxiety. You don't have to carry this with you. Don't believe the people who tell you that if you're depressed and anxious, you're just biologically broken. That will add to your shame. You, you, you deserve more love and more compassion, not less. Lots of the time you see people who are suffering with depression, for example. There's a multitude of reasons, but I'll take one common reason. Um, you could think about it as associated with the story of Peter Pan. Now, Peter Pan is someone who won't grow up, right? Now, the problem with Peter Pan is he gets to be king, but it's king of Neverland. Neverland doesn't exist. So being king of nothing isn't that helpful. Well, one of the things that you often see with people who suffer from depression, and, and I'm not making a blanket statement about the cause of depression because there's lots of them, is that people who don't have enough order in their life tend to get overwhelmed. So, for example, if someone comes into me and see, to see me and they say they're depressed, I always ask them a very standard set of questions. Uh, do you have a job? If you don't have a job, you're really in trouble in our society. First of all, you, your biological rhythms tend to go off the rails right away because there's no reason to go to bed at any particular time and there's no reason to get up. And for many people, if they don't get up at the same time, they follow up the functioning of their circadian rhythms and that's enough to make them depressed right off the bat, especially if they start napping during the afternoon. They don't, also don't have a purpose. People aren't good without a purpose. And, and this, isn't, this isn't hypothesizing. We absolutely understand the circuitry that underlies positive emotion. We know how it works. Almost all the positive emotion that any of you are likely to experience in your life will not be a consequence of attaining things. It will be a consequence of seeing that things are working as you proceed towards a goal you value. That's completely different. And you need to know this because people are often stunned, for example. They finish their PhD thesis, and their presupposition is that they're going to be elated for a month. And often, instead, they're actually depressed. And they think, oh, what, what the hell? I've been working on this for seven years, and I handed it in, and what do I do now? And, and that's what depresses them, right? It's the what do I do now? Well, they're fine if they enjoyed it pursuing the thing. As long as it was working out, they get a lot of enthusiasm and excitement out of that because that's how our nervous systems work. Most of your positive emotion is goal pursuit emotion. If you take drugs like cocaine or amphetamine, the reason they're enjoyable is because they turn on the systems that help you pursue goals. That's why people like them. So if you don't have a job, you got no structure, that's not good. Plus, you tend not to have a point. So you're overwhelmed by chaotic lack of structure and you don't have any positive emotion. Well, do you have any friends? So sometimes you see people who are depressed, they have no job, they have no friends, they have no intimate relationship, they have an additional health problem, and they have a drug and alcohol problem. My experience has been if you have three of those problems, it's almost impossible to help you. You're so deeply mired in chaos that you can't get out because you make progress on one front and one of your other problems pulls you down. So one of the things I tell people who are depressed is like, don't sacrifice your stability. Get a job, even if it's not the job you exactly want. Get a damn job. You need a job. Find some friends. Get out in the dating circuit. See if you can establish an intimate relationship. Put together some of the foundational items that, that are like pillars that your life rests on. Well, that's the practical thing to do. So that's one example with regards to depression. Well, the thing is, you don't just launch it on them, you know. You've you got to negotiate with the person. And you also got to teach them to negotiate with themselves. And th this is something that's very useful to know. You know, um, you can tyrannize yourself into doing things, but I wouldn't recommend it. What, what I would recommend it instead is that you ask yourself what you're willing to do. 
It's a really effective technique. It's like a meditative technique. So, for example, you can get up in the morning and you can think, well, you know, I'd like to have a good day today, so I'd like to go to bed tonight without feeling guilty because I, you know, didn't do some things I said I was going to do, and I, you know, I'd like to have kind of an interesting day. So you've got to fulfill my responsibilities, and I want to, you know, enjoy the day. Then you can ask yourself, well, okay, what would I have to do in order for that to happen that I would do? And the probability, if you practice this for three or four days, is your brain will just tell you. It'll say, well, you know, there's that piece of homework that you haven't done for like three weeks. You should knock that sucker off because it would only take you ten minutes and you've been avoiding it and torturing yourself to death for, you know, like, like 72 hours straight. And if you do that, here's a little interesting thing you can do. And, you know, maybe this is a little obligation you should clean up. And so what, what you do in a situation like that is you teach the person to negotiate with themselves. Say, well, let's figure out what your aims are. You've got to have some aims, whatever they are. And they might say, well, I'm so depressed I don't have any aims. And then I say, well, pick the least objectionable of the aims and act it out for a while and see what happens. Because sometimes your emotional, your emotional systems are so fouled up that you have to pretend, you have to act the thing out before you can start to believe it. I mean, people always assume they have to believe and then act. But, but that's, sometimes that's true and lots of times it isn't. So the trick if you're doing therapeutic work with someone and you're helping them establish a structure is to find out what they'll do. Now, if they want to get better, which is not a given, because there are often payoffs for not getting better. That's basically the payoffs of being a martyr or maybe the payoffs of doing what your entirely pathological family members want you to do because they actually want you to fail. Assuming you want to get better, there's usually something you can figure out that would constitute a step towards some sort of concrete goal. And my presumption, it's a behavioral presumption fundamentally, is that small accruing gains that repeat are unbelievably powerful. So, you know, in, this is another thing to know about in your own life. It's something I learned in part from reading the writings of Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who's a great Russian philosopher and novelist. You know, he said, you can look at your life and you can see what isn't right about it. I mean, all you have to do is look. And then you can start to fix that. And the way you fix it is by noticing what you could, in fact, fix. You know, people are often trying to fix things they can't fix, which I would not recommend, because if you try to fix something you can't fix, you'll just ruin it. Like, you can find all sorts of undergraduates who are perfectly willing to restructure the, uh, you know, the, the international economic system who cannot keep their room clean. And there's actually a gap there, you know, which, and it's surprising that people don't actually notice. So I would say, if you pay attention, you can see things that you could fix. They yell at you. They really do. We even know how that happens. Let me, let me give you an example. Because rooms are full of stories. And the stories have, have effects on you. So here's a classic experiment. So you take two groups of undergraduates. You bring them into your lab. And you give one group uh, a multiple choice test that has a bunch of words in it that are associated with being old. And you give the other group the same multiple choice test, except the words are associated with being young. This is independent of the content of the test. It's just descriptions. And then you time the undergraduates as they walk back to the elevators. The ones who read, the ones who completed the multiple choice test that had more words associated with aging walk slower back to the elevators. And they don't know that. And, th and they don't know they're doing it. And that, that study's been replicated in various forms many, many times. You're unbelievably sensitive to the story that your environment's telling you. Because your environment is not made out of objects. That's just wrong. Your environment is basically made out of something like tools and obstacles. You're a tool-using creature. You're a tool-perceiving creature. The things you, like if I take you out of this room and I say, well, what was in the room? You're not going to say, uh, you know, random patterns in the carpet because they're, they're real. They're just as good an object as anything else. You're going to say chairs because you can sit on them. And you're going to say handrails because you can hold them. You're going to say stairs because you can walk down them. 
That's what you see, and that's what you interact with. And if you pay attention to your environment, which is you, by the way, extended, all of your experience is you, it will tell you all the time what you should do. All you have to do is do it. But then you have to decide if you want to do it. One of the things I've noticed about people, because I've wondered, once I started studying these mythological stories, and I got this idea about the, the fact that life can be meaningful enough to justify its suffering, I thought, God, that's such a good idea. Because it's not optimistic exactly. You know, some people will tell you, well, you can be happy. It's like, those people are idiots. I'm telling you, they're idiots. There's going to be things that come along that flatten you so hard you won't believe it. And you're not happy then. And so if life is to be happy, well, in those situations, what are you doing? Why even live? But that isn't, life isn't to be happy. If you're happy, you're bloody fortunate, and you should enjoy it. You should, because it's the grace of God, so to speak. With regards to, to meaning, I thought, well, people know when they're doing something meaningful. They can tell. So why the hell don't they do meaningful things all the time? It seems obvious. You could do it. I mean, it's hard, you know, because other people want you to do other things. And it's a struggle, but... Everything's a struggle. And then I thought, well, oh, I get it. I see why. It took me about 10 years to figure this out. People have a choice. Choice number one, nothing you do means anything. Well, that's kind of a drag, right? It's meaninglessness of life and all that, existential angst. You know, that's kind of a pain. But the upside of nothing that you do be mean is meaningful is you don't have to do anything. You've got no responsibility. Now, you have to suffer because things are meaningless, but that's a small price to pay for being able to be completely useless. The alternative, the alternative is everything you do matters. Really. If you make a mistake, it's a real mistake. If you betray someone, you tilt the world a little more sharply towards evil rather than good. It matters what you do. Well, if you buy that, then you can have a meaningful life. But there's no mucking around. It means responsibility. It means that the decisions you make are important. It means that when you do something wrong, it's wrong. Well, 